issues of the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The Union Sun and Journal for February 20th, front page. Sport Fishing Feeders. Volunteers seek county support for stocking program that keeps local waters filled with fresh catch by Benjamin Joe. A Niagara County study determined sports fishing put $58.55 million into the local economy in 2022. Part of what makes that possible, according to Frank Campbell, County Sports Fishing Coordinator, is that the fishing season has no end in western New York. People book rooms, eat meals, gas up their boats, and or get rentals all year long in Niagara County. Another facet of the county's success story is the fishing pens operated and maintained by the Lake Ontario Trout and Salmon Association. Under their care, the young fish are getting get bigger and therefore have a better survival rate once they are in local waters, Campbell said. The Niagara County Legislature will be looking at a resolution to grant the volunteer group $4,000 for the repair and replacement of those pens in Newfane, Alcott, Wilson, and Youngstown at its Tuesday meeting. Fish stocking pens play an important role in maintaining local sport fishing because the temperature of the water in Western Lake, Ontario runs warm very quickly. Optimum temperatures for reproduction for salmon and trout is about 50 degrees, but temperatures in the creeks and tributaries where fish often spawn are known to soar to 60 degrees. Fish pens keep their water cool. The survival of salmon and trout is just one of two goals of the Lake Ontario Trout and Salmon Association, Campbell said. In terms of salmon, the small fish that are stocked in these pens imprint on local waters as a place for spawning in three to four years' time. Steelhead trout may spawn locally within a year. If and when they do imprint and return to the relative safety from predators in the pens, which are netted on all sides and top, association volunteers see firsthand how their stewardship has affected the behavior of these different fish. They do the best we, we can to care for them, and really they become the babies of these volunteers, Campbell said, noting that often the fish will be released from the pens during the night to decrease the likelihood that they are caught by migratory birds. A prime, prime way to see the results of the group's handiwork is the LOC Derby held in the spring, summer, and fall, and booking up lodgings all along Lake Ontario's shore in the race to win the prize money for the best catches, Niagara County is set apart from other shorelines. About 88% of winning fish for the LOC Derby come from off of Niagara County, Campbell said. Under local news, composting site in the works in Pendleton by Robert Creenan. Graham Brothers Property Services, a landscaping and property maintenance company based in Pendleton, is looking to start a new branch of the business based around composting. Named Niagara Organics, the operation planned at 5500 Lockport Road would allow landscapers and homeowners to dump their yard waste, such as grass clippings, leaves, branches, wood chips, sod, and topsoil. That waste would be composted and sold to agricultural businesses and owner, homeowners. Justin Graham, one of the owners, said the new business will complement the existing landscaping work that Graham Brothers does, as a significant amount of its yard waste ends up going to landfills. We're filling up landfills like crazy, he said. We're hoping to alleviate some of that and turn it back to usable materials. This would be the only such business in Niagara County taking in yard byproducts. The nearest existing composting facility is C.J. Krantz in East Amherst. Documents state this company is looking to get agreements with municipalities in the county for waste disposal. The business requested a 15-year, $150,000 loan from the Niagara County Development Corporation to cover site work costs 
which members of the Niagara County Industrial Development Agency have already approved. Board members said the project is a win-win, would be cash flow positive when it opens, and could pull in business from neighboring municipalities in Erie County. The listed project cost is $544,000 with other funding sources including lines of credit with KeyBank and Cornerstone, CFCU, and Equity. The project documents state that the site will be complete by this November and the business will be operating by next spring. Eight acres of the 65-acre site will be used for composting. A 6,000 square foot pole barn 800 square feet of office space, two fabric hoop-style buildings for topsoil and rock salt storage, and a parking area are also planned. MHT Holdings Niagara County Housing Renovation Project Scrapped by Robert Creenan. The planned rehabilitation of two Niagara County housing properties will not be moving forward. MHT Holdings was looking to purchase and renovate 75 apartment units in Brookside Commons at 6127 North Whittem Drive in the town of Niagara and Silver Lake Apartments at 8235 and 8305 Buffalo Avenue in Niagara Falls, turning them into affordable housing. MHT recently notified the Niagara County Industrial Development agency, it would withdraw its project application. MHT President Mark Trammell said he was informed in January about a new state policy where the New York State Homes and Community Renewal will only issue low-income housing tax credits for new housing projects, not renovations. It also prevents industrial development agencies from issuing the kind of tax-exempt bonds he needed to move forward. I'm very disappointed, Trammell said, feeling they were close to closing on the properties. The Niagara County IDA previously awarded MHT $1.25 million in tax incentives for Silver Lake Apartments and $504,401 for Brookside Commons with those not used. Aside from Niagara County, Trammell has been involved in affordable housing projects in Erie County, planning to acquire further units in the town of Tonawanda and the village of Kenmore. The Brookside Commons project had received some criticism from town of Niagara officials about the complex coming lower income housing, feeling this should not qualify for pilot benefits and residents being displaced. The IDA's support for this involved no current residents being displaced. From the opinions page, cheers and jeers. Cheer. His parents called him a natural and Jake Jackson, 15, is taking his talents at billiards to a prestigious tournament in Villarica, Georgia, next month. The Monica Webb Battle of the Junior Champions, named for a champion female pool player, is open to only the top 20 players aged 18 and younger in the U.S. and Canada. It's not just about pool. Sponsored by the Billiard Education Foundation, the competition requires the players to keep high grades in school, demonstrate good manners, and adhere to a dress code when competing. Jake has already chalked up a few wins, competing and winning twice at a fundraiser for the Variety Kids Telethon at Bison Billiards at Eastern Hills Mall. In August, Jake will compete in the Joss Northeast Nine Ball Tour Final at Turning Stone Casino in Verona. He will be the youngest player ever to compete in this Pro-Am event, which awards $40,000 in prizes. Rack them up cheer. In February, with HART, Home Assistance Referral Team, reminding county residents of the services it provides. DiCamillo Bakery is showing its support by baking up batches of a special cookie with a portion of the proceeds going directly to HART. We wanted to say thank you to HART for all they do for so many, and we thought this was a great way to do so, said Matthew DiCamillo. Hart celebrated 40 years of service in 2022. 
It helps seniors remain independent in their homes by linking them with qualified and affordable assistance in Niagara and Erie counties. HART continues to rely on support from foundation grants, individuals, and business organizations, as well as the proceeds from community funding events. Those looking to support HART will, can do so online at www.hartprogram.org donate. D. Camillo's Cookie is being sold at all of its retail locations. Jeer. You either love them or hate them, it seems. For the most part, though, squirrels are rather anonymous as they raid bird feeders or torment pets while frolicking throughout our backyards. Can you really tell one from the other? Not likely. And that's the way it should be, as a man downstate recently found out. Acting on a tip, state DEC officers and Putnam County SPCA officials conducted a surveillance operation in Patterson several weeks ago. Their quarry, unnaturally colorful squirrels. After spotting a bright red squirrel across the road, a suspect was questioned and he admitted to trapping and painting squirrels to keep track of which ones came into his yard and caused his dog to bark. The man was ticketed for violations related to the trapping, transporting, and liberating of wildlife, according to the DEC, which also issued a statewide warning on the subject. Some things were just not meant to know. And the obituaries. Ainsley Claire Gorman, December 21st, 2004 to February 18th, 2024. Constant Krentz, March 4th, 1948 to February 8th, 2024. Jeffrey D. Sye, C-Y-E, April 22nd, 1948, February 18th, 2024. Helen Jean Delahunt, September 22nd, 1953, February 7th, 2024. Joan J. Cherry. February 7th, 1932 to February 17th, 2024. Brenda L. Schultz, July 14th, 1950 to February 15th, 2024. Margaret Luce Young, January 25th, 1936 to February 5th, 2024. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The Union Sun and Journal for February 21st, front page. Newfane Library to be closed temporarily. Asbestos remediation renovation work beginning March 4th. Remaining trustees announce. Thomas Tedesco. Newfane Public Library will be temporarily closed starting March 4th for asbestos removal and renovations. The announcement follows the recent resignations of the entire library staff and four members of its Board of Trustees. In a statement posted on the library's Facebook page Tuesday morning, the remaining board members contend that the remediation and renovations had been in the works for quite some time to comply with state and federal guidelines. Asbestos removal from a section of the library building was first discussed by library staff and trustees at the board's June 5, 2023 meeting and does not appear to have been discussed again until December 4th meeting, according to the board meeting minutes posted on the library's website. The section of the building where remediation is to take place was not identified in the minutes. The trustee's statement confirmed the board that Board Vice President Mickey Cramp, Vice President of Finance Cindy Ames, and Trustee Carolyn Larkin tendered their resignations alongside President Kelly Artieri on February 15th. We thank them for their years of service. The remaining board members are dedicated to keeping the library open and safe to the public as we refill the board seats, the statement reads. According to the library's bylaws, board vacancies, with the exception of the president's post, shall be filled by majority vote of the remaining trustees 
then in office upon a nomination from the floor. However, the bylaws state a total of five trustees are required to have a quorum and conduct business, and currently the board has only three members, Kim Chenis, Sue Kaprizik, and Christine Wright. Trustees' resignations came a bit more than a week after the entire four-person library staff quit their posts following the board's February 6th meeting. The minutes of that meeting show that the library clerk, Emily Clark's resignation, took effect Tuesday. Library director, Sarah O'Shea's resignation is effective February 29th and library clerks Phyllis Walker and Colette O'Connor and library manager Amy Wilts resignations are all effective March 1st. New York State regulations governing libraries require us to hire a library director with specific education and training. The first order of business is to hire a new library director who will manage staffing. The remaining trustees said in their statement. The reason or reasons for the staff's departures are unknown. Wilt, who was reached by phone at the library on February 13th, declined to comment, and Artieri would only say that one of the resignations was due to health reasons. The trustees' Tuesday statement said their hope is to see the library reopened by April. Branching out, Northwest Bank announces intent to relocate Lockport Branch Office by Benjamin Joe. Northwest Bank announced Tuesday that it is seeking a buyer for its branch office building at 55 East Avenue while searching for an other more suitable space downtown. According to Sean Walker, Executive Vice President of Communications and Regional Marketing, Multi-story 55 East Avenue is not a good fit for Northwest Bank. The building was constructed to house a full-service bank. It was originally the headquarters of Lockport Savings Bank, and in the eight years that Northwest Bank has occupied it, the only service used has been the drive-through teller lane. 55 East Avenue has been listed with Hunt Commercial Real Estate Group. Meanwhile, Northwest plans to find or construct a smaller Lockport branch office. The bank wants to stay downtown, according to Rick Hamister, Northwest's Great Lakes Region President. While we plan to remain in downtown Lockport, it no longer makes sense for us to maintain such a large property. It's better to be in the hands of someone who can make full use of the facility, Hamister said. In the end, we want to ensure the best possible experience for our customers and will invest in a new facility that provides for greater access and convenience, lobby slash drive through slash ATM, and space for our business partners. Bank executives said Northwest is committed to finding the right development for developer for 55 East Avenue, and partly as a result, its move to a new branch office should be several years out. This is really important to us to not leave the building vacant, Walker said. We love Lockport and will be s continue serving the community in an impactful way, Amister added. We are committed to working with our realtor and local officials to find the right buyer or developer to ensure the best future use of the building to further enhance the vitality of the community. Under local news, Barker Lions out and about in February. The members of Barker Lions Club had three opportunities to meet community needs last week. On February 11th, they teamed with the Barker Music Boosters for a pancake breakfast. In addition to enjoying the breakfast, the students' musical talents were displayed. The third and fourth grade chorus, high school jazz band, and cast of Anastasia all performed. Proceeds from this fundraiser will go towards the school music program. On Valentine's Day, Barker Senior Citizens Club had the opportunity to learn about Barker's Lions Club, whose secretary, Margot Sue Bittner, attended their luncheon. Lions originated in Chicago, and Bittner gave the history starting with Melvin Jones founding the organization through Helen Keller's appeal for them to be her Knights of the Blind and on to other milestones. She continued with the history of the Barker Club, 
woven into the story were various examples of Lions Club projects and how Lions strive to aid their communities. Also on February 14th, Barker Lions were the guests of Lindenville Lions at their monthly meeting. The Lions who attended were able to meet Lions from a different district and discover other projects they promote. Bittner was again the speaker, retelling the legend of Appleton Hall and proposing a second meeting of Barker and Lindenville Lions, this time with Barker hosting. Barker Lions Club dinner meetings are held on the first Wednesday of each month in the club's community building. Each meeting features a speaker from the community. On March 3rd, Barker Lions will be at the Alcott Polar Bear Swim selling chicken barbecue dinners. If you'd like to know more about the Lions or have someone speak to your organization, email roar, that's R-O-A-R, at barkerlions.org or call 585-480-5437. Peace Officer Advancing in New Fane by Thomas Tedesco. The Newfane Town Board is moving forward with the local law to establish multiple peace officer positions. Also known as constables, peace officers' main duties would be to assist enforcement of local codes and ordinances, according to Town Attorney Jim Sansone. It's an extension of the code enforcement officer to do investigations of code violations and things like that, Sansone said. Sansone is in the process of finishing the final draft of the law before he presents it to the town board at their next meeting on February 28th. According to town supervisor John Syracuse, the board has gone through multiple drafts of the law since last year to narrow down the responsibilities of town peace officers. When we first started this, we sent our town attorneys on a quest to get us the broadest scope of duties that a town constable can do, and we found out that it's pretty broad, Syracuse said. In addition to code enforcement, the draft local law envisions the peace officers providing security at town government meetings as well as crowd control and traffic direction at town events. The part-time positions would be filled by the town's current dog control officers, Jeff Newman, Joseph Flagler, and Kenneth Nurberg. They would share code enforcement duties with town building inspector David Schmidt. They will have the experience required to handle and process complaints, Syracuse said. Right now we have one retired sheriff's deputy and we have two active correction officers that are in the dog control officer's position. They're there to get out there, become involved, and try to diffuse and solve issues. While the constables would also have the authority to act as town court officers, Sansone said there is no plan to have them serve in that capacity. At this point, they will have that function, but I don't think we'll need them to do that. That will be up to the judges, he said. After the draft law is presented to the town board, Sansone anticipates a public hearing will be scheduled. Following that, the draft must be approved by the town board and the Niagara County Planning Board before it takes effect. The Lockport Union Sun and Journal for February 23rd, front page. Newfane Library Board to hold a special meeting. Tuesday assembly will be first since resignation of staff and board members by Thomas Tedesco. The Newfane Public Library Board of Trustees has called for a special meeting February 27th. This will be the first meeting of the library board since the resignations of the entire staff and four board members in the past couple weeks. The public meeting will be held at Newfane Community Center at the town hall at 6 p.m. Notice of the special meeting was posted on the library's Facebook page late Wednesday. No agenda or additional details on topics of discussion have been made available by the library or the board. When contacted by the Union Sun and Journal on Thursday, Trustee Kim Chenis declined to comment beyond the statement that the three remaining trustees issued Tuesday. In that statement, also posted to the library's Facebook page, the remaining trustees contend that newly announced asbestos remedi remediation 
and modest renovations had been in the works for quite some time to comply with state and federal guidelines. Asbestos removal from a section of the library building was first discussed by library staff and trustees during the board's June 5, 2023 meeting and does not appear to have been discussed again until December 4th board meeting, according to the board. Raw, steamed, or fried, new seafood restaurant, DW's Juicy Clam Shack, coming to Alcott this spring by Thomas Tedesco. A new restaurant will be serving up seafood in a style reminiscent of an old local staple. Alcott native Wayne Mikulak and his wife Destini are opening their new restaurant, DW's Juicy Clam Shack, 5860 East Main Street, right down the street from where the seafood bar once stood. Wayne recalls many trips to the seafood bar from his old home a couple of miles away, and his mother steaming clams in several other local establishments, including the Black Stallion Tavern. Since the Steve seafood bar closed several years ago, there really wasn't any type of seafood-specific restaurant here in Alcott, he said. Destini said that while the restaurant will have a different twist to it, community anticipation has been building on their Facebook page about the return of a seafood restaurant to the lakeside hamlet. It's the remembrance of the seafood bar that's triggering everybody, she said. After creating the page last fall, Wayne said that they have been gaining significant community traction. It blew up overnight. I'm getting requests from people saying they're coming all the way from Rochester and Syracuse, he said. It's also that community input that has assisted the Michalax in compiling some of the items on their menu. I was basically letting the consumer pick what the menu is going to be, and the number one thing things were obviously the steamed and raw clams, the clam broth, and the little tiny salads that the seafood bar used to give, Wayne said. In addition to clams, DW's Juicy Clam Shack will offer Louisiana-style seafood, such as crawfish and shrimp boils. Currently, the Michalaks are putting the finishing touches on the building, which previously had been occupied with storage units. The restaurant layout will include a bar and eventually an outdoor patio. DWs will have a soft opening March 3rd in conjunction with the Alcott Polar Bear Swim. The doors will be open officially Thursday through Sunday each week starting April 6th ahead of the total solar eclipse. Under local news, New York State Canal System workers agreed to a new deal five-year agreement approved by MYPA and State Canal Corporation. New York Power Authority and New York State Canal Corporation have reached a new five-year contract agreement with Civil Service Employees Association Local 1000 AFSCME AFL-CIO. The union represents more than 380 New York State Canal Corporation employees who operate and maintain the 524-mile New York State Canal system. The New York Power Authority and Canal Corporation Board of Trustees approved the agreement on February 6. The new collective bargaining agreement expires June 30, 2027 and includes retroactive wage increases 2% for the first three years and 3% for the remaining two years. It also includes other increases in compensation as well as a one-time $3,000 signing bonus payable to employees provided they meet negotiated eligibility requirements. Other negotiated terms include changes to time off provisions and modifications aimed at recruitment and retention efforts. As MYPA continues to strategically invest in the canal system's infrastructure so that it remains safe and operational for users and continues to support the economies of canal-side communities, this contract is an investment in the dedicated and skilled workforce that ensures the canal's continued reliability, said New York Power Authority President and CEO Justin E. Driscoll. 
We are very pleased to have arrived at this agreement with CSEA as it guarantees each employee a competitive wage with benefits that encourage them to have a long career at the Canal Corporation. New York State Canal Corporation Director Brian U. Stratton added, I have personally witnessed the care and passion our workers exuberate as they operate, refurbish, and rehabilitate and modernize the working components of the canal system, a majority of which are more than 100 years old. As we prepare to celebrate the Erie Canal's bicentennial in 2025, it is very appropriate that we celebrate our staff that safeguards the canal's legacy and continued positive impact on our state through the contract agreement. Canal Corporation actively recruits workers throughout the year. To learn more about available job openings, visit statejobs.ny.gov. On the opinions page, our view, explanation of turmoil at Newfane Library is overdue. What the heck is going on at Newfane Public Library? That's what Newfane resident library users especially would like to know. Over the past two weeks, first, all five library staff members resigned. Then, four of seven members of the library's governing board resigned. And then, the remaining trustees, who together don't constitute a quorum, posted a rather stunning brief message on the library's Facebook page. The library will be closed temporarily as of March 4th, not because there will be no library staff after March 1st, but because construction work will be taking place inside the library to remediate asbestos and do some minor refurbishing that has been in the works for, quote, quite some time. No staff, asbestos remediation, closing for a month or so, and not a single trustee willing to go on the record which is to say, go public, and explain what the heck is going on at Newfane Public Library. The Union Sun and Journal, quote, broke the new story of the Newfane librarian's mass exodus last week by checking out an anonymous tip. Kelly Artieri, the library board president, until she quit within a few days of that story being published on February 13th, confirmed four employees had tendered their resignations following the board's February 6th meeting, although the minutes of that meeting show five employees resigned, and said little else worth repeating in a telephone interview with reporter Thomas Tedesco. She gave a canned verbal statement about the board, referencing sometimes unpopular but necessary decisions, and pledged to keep the community informed but she declined to explain in general terms what was behind the mass exodus and would not even say when the resignations were taking effect. Three days later, Artieri sent an electronic press release to the U Union Sun and Journal announcing, among other things, that she and three other unnamed trustees had quit their posts on February 15th. That release also referenced the library's ongoing search for a full-time in-person library director and shared publicly, apparently for the first time, information about needed cleanup of undisturbed asbestos in the older part of the building. Artieri also left a voicemail with an editor alerting us to her incoming release and trying to persuade us to print just print that and spare her the pesky questions. Your reporters have kind of been all over us this last week. I really don't want to work with a reporter who's just going to badger me with questions, was her message in part. Well, suffice to say, when contacted by again by Tedesco, Artieri declined to even name the three other trustees who had quit. Oh, where to start? How about here? What's the, di the biggest difference between a free library and a public library? One's a nonprofit association dependent on charity for its existence, while the other is a taxing jurisdiction, hence a publicly owned institution. Further, 
That institution is overseen by a board of trustees whose members are elected to office by qualified residents of the Newfane School District who choose to cast votes during the library's legally required annual meeting. When first asked about the Newfane Library staff quitting en masse, Artieri managed to work into her canned statement a line about library trustees being volunteers. To an extent, that's true. Like school board members, library trustees don't get paid for their service. Being, quote, volunteers does not exempt them from any of the duties attached to a public office, however. Ultimately, the duty of public trustees is to oversee, manage, and safeguard a public asset on the public's behalf in an open and transparent manner. It is not ever the duty or the right of these trustees, collectively or individually, to withhold relevant information from the public in an attempt to somehow protect the asset or anyone who's associated with its management. A full explanation to the constituency about what's going on at New Fame Public Library is overdue. If you're a constituent who wants answers, we encourage you to start asking questions. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The Union Sun and Journal for February 24th to 25th. Front page. Niagara Post Theater Group starting engraved brick campaign. Bricks to be laid in front of Old Fort Niagara State Park Theater Marquee by Robert Creenan. As David Graff and his group of volunteers continue renovating the Niagara Post Theater at Fort Niagara State Park, they have started a new fundraising campaign to help in the effort. The group is offering engraved bricks for purchase, which will be placed by the theater's marquee and front walkway. Right now, we're making the effort to make people conscious and get more support, said Graf, the board president for the theater. People have the desire to be part of what we're doing. Two brick options are being offered, a four by eight inch engraved brick of up to three rows and 20 characters, and a 12 inch by 12 inch star of up to four rows of various characters and lengths. They cost $150 and $350, respectively. There are 400 bricks and 200 stars available. More will be made available depending on how they sell. The campaign is similar to another such theater, the Tybee Post Theater on Tybee Island, Georgia, which offered similar bricks laid out by its entrance. Originally built in 1931, the Niagara Post Theater was part of a Great Depression-era Works Progress Administration program to build movie theaters on military bases. It closed in 1963 as the entire base was decommissioned, falling into disuse. Graf, along with the 10 other board members, started efforts to repair the theater in 2019. He signed a $2 a $2 million contract with New York State Parks for this restoration, allowing him to use it rent-free for 20 years before turning it back over or signing another lease. His desire for a place for children's theater and other community events stems from his stepdaughter, Amy Teal, who founded Teal's Niagara Theater based out of the Niagara Arts and Cultural Center. The renovation plans call for adding 5,000 square feet to the building, making room for new bathrooms, dressing rooms, tech rooms, loading docks, and orchestra space and other spaces to make the theater a fully functioning performing arts center. All these updates have to follow the State Historic Preservation Office's gu guidelines to follow historical accuracy. Originally designed for a capacity of 394 people, it was reduced to 260 by the time the theater closed. The planned capacity for its eventual opening is 199, so the venue can qualify as an equity theater. Since work started, renovation costs have grown from $2.5 million to $4 million. 
Graf said that was due to making additions to plans, costs increasing between 20 and 25 percent, and construction lead times are up to seven months. Everybody's booked so full, Graf said, not estimating when all the work would be done. Sources of funding included grants worth $120,000 from the Niagara River Greenway Commission and $10,000 from the Niagara Falls National Heritage Area and $6,211 from Give 716. A virtual concert was held in June 2021 as a fundraiser. Graf is working on getting a $75,000 Crest grant through Assemblyman Angelo Morinello's office. Brick orders can be made online at www.niagarapostheater.org slash bricks-stars-fundraiser. Barbecue Family Expands, Middleport-based eatery Parker's Pit Opening New Niagara Falls Location by Thomas Tedesco. A barbecue eatery's expansion from one end of Niagara County to the other has been almost eight years in the making. The journey first began in 2016 with two pairs of tongs, smoked clams, and nachos topped with pulled pork at what would become Parker's Pit on Ridge Road in Middleport. My wife decided to sign me up for a barbecue cook-off, co-owner and founder Mark Brunings recalled, and then everybody wanted to know where a restaurant was. Well, that restaurant didn't come right away. It didn't take long for Bruning, his wife Candace, and their children to move up to a trailer with an outdoor dining setup, serving barbecue in various parking lots and seasonal events throughout the county. Now Parker's Pit will be opening its first formal brick-and-mortar location, 10158 Niagara Falls Boulevard. Now we're on the side of the county, plus we're already on the other side of the county, and my trailers will be in the middle, Mark said. Even though the Brunings business has been steadily growing since 2016, it wasn't until a few months ago that they believed having a brick-and-mortar restaurant was a possibility. If you asked me two years ago about a sit-down restaurant, I would have told you no, he said. Unlike several eateries, the family recalled that due to their predominantly takeout business, they were able to grow during the COVID-19 pandemic, which led them to buy a second larger trailer in 2021 and convert the breezeway between their house and garage in Middleport into a certified kitchen. However, when the former Como at the airport site became available, Mark said they decided to kick the tires on brick and mortar expansion. We looked into it and everything seemed to work out, he said. After discussing a potential expansion, the family, including their son Parker, were excited about the prospects of opening at a new location. When I found out about this, I was very shocked, Parker said. It's the start of a big adventure and hopefully a big career for me because my dad tells me all the time he's building an empire. Parker's biggest goal is to do this, Candace added. Extending that sense of family to their customers has also been a focal point of their business. So when customers were coming in, we wouldn't say, oh, we got a customer. We'd say, oh, we got company, because they literally coming to our house. When you come through our door, you're barbecue family, Mark said. The family is currently working to get the restaurant space up and running to host both dine-in and take-out operations. Mark said they anticipate to open the doors to customers sometime in March. Under local news... An artist sees mystery in a random image. Photo of a woman overlooking Niagara Falls quietly seeps into community consciousness by Mark Shear. You may have seen the photo at various places in the Cataract City. Local artist Frank Stanzik hopes you have at least. The image is that of a woman dressed in dark clothing standing near a railing at the edge of Niagara Falls using her right hand to hold a pair of glasses away from her face, as if she just slipped them off to get a better look. In her left hand is a cell phone. 
Behind her is a coin-operated binocular viewer, the same used by tourists to gaze at the falls. Stanzik, a 30-year-old Niagara Falls native with a love of photography and art, took the photo of the woman in 2019. He never got her name. He just felt the way he was looking at the falls said something cool about the place, the city where he was born. To me, there's a little bit of mystique and mystery to that photo, he said. You don't know who that person is or what they're doing. You recognize the viewfinder and you recognize the falls and that's what draws you to it. Viewers of the photo are left to wonder what else the anonymous woman saw and what other experiences she may have had during her visit. Stannis likes to think she came here as a tourist, but she left here as a local. Stannis named the piece The Tourist with Glasses. If it seems familiar to you, it may be because there are now prints of it on various street corners and in other spots across the city. The public display is part of an art form known as pasting or wheat pasting. It involves plastering photos or paintings in public areas where they can draw attention and make people think and wonder. Stanish has done other pieces of street art of other images tied to the falls. He's done similar pieces in Dallas. I believe if the photo is taken in the street, it should be displayed there, Stanish said. Like so many other natives, Stanish has suffered through years of business and factory closings, disappointing development projects, and other forms of economic hardship. He said he hopes the tourist with glasses reminds those who see it that when you are in a place where Niagara Falls serves as the backdrop, there's there's still always room for hope and optimism. I just wanted to start a conversation in the falls to say, hey, not everything's bad, he said. A 2011 graduate of Niagara Falls High School, Stanish said his interest in art and photography grew while he was a student at Niagara County Community College. At one point, he and a business partner started a local clothing line, My Hope Hat, My Dope Hat Game, or MDHD for short. In recent years, Stanish has taken an interest in documenting life and work in Niagara Falls and Western New York. His most recent works include a series of on-the-job photos featuring workers baking bread and other items inside DiCamillo's bakery. He did another photo shoot that captured the comings and goings of customers and workers on a typical day inside the, another long-standing local business, Latinas on Pine Avenue. Well, he admits the city has been in a state of decline pretty much since the day he was born, Stanish said he remains encouraged by its future. He said he thinks there have been more promising developments in recent years than at any point in his life. He hopes others feel the same way, that the city, despite its many faults, still has great people and the potential for a tremendous upside. As a photographer and artist, who loves roaming around his hometown looking for cool shots and fascinating imagery, it remains an inspiring place. There's still a sense of community here, even though it's run down, he just said. There's good things happening here, he added. To learn more about Frank Sanish and his art and his photography, follow him on Facebook or visit his website at stanizoriginals.com. From the opinions page, Struggling to Stay Positive and Productive by Robert C. Kohler. Excuse me as I ponder eternity briefly. Like it or not, this is the essence of uh, aging. As I wrote a year ago, once you actually hit it, that three-letter word old, watch out. An aged man, as William Butler Yeats pointed out, as he sailed poetically to Byzantine, is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick. Nonetheless, hooray for my good fortune. I've been dancing round at age 77 for a while now. And before I start complaining about the aches and pains that come with it, I have to acknowledge, indeed revere, the mere fact of making it this far. 
So many people don't due to the random will of fate, but also due to the hell of war, which remains humanity's cancerous addiction. How can I complain when the bombs I help pay for are killing children? So the following words are not meant to be complainy, just rather a contemplation of the great unknown whose presence becomes increasingly more visible as the aging process obfuscates more and more of my certainties and indeed rattles my optimism. The core of this optimism is the mantra that helped me make it through middle age, be positive and productive. It was my psychological, my spiritual cane. Now it feels broken. In its place, I seem to have an anti-mantra, which I refer to as give up attitude. You know, life is just a doggone inconvenience. Addressing it pragmatically, paying bills on a regular basis, for instance, doesn't seem to yield the benefits it used to. The negative consequences of not doing so are still present, of course, but I am feeling less and less a sense of equality, you might say, with the process of life. The difficulties of living keep mounting no matter how many damn bills I pay or chores I do. And give up attitude, which for me amounts to surrendering my day to computer games, junk food, and a random wandering through YouTube, becomes ever more enticing. Come on, Bob, be positive and productive. Work on your book, you know, the book that will explain the nature of peace to Joe Biden and those other war-addicted polls out there. This book, and I quote, it's beginning. Let's start the book with a moment of silence, nine minutes and 29 seconds of silence, maybe, in honor of a man who lost his life to a retributive, fear-driven system of justice, and in honor as well of the uprising that began to emerge in the wake of his death. This book hopes to be a continuation of that uprising. The man is George Floyd. Nine minutes and 29 seconds was the length of time a Minneapolis police officer knelt on his neck, suffocating him in October 2020. He, or somebody, had supposedly tried to use a counterfeit bill at a grocery store. His death was caught on video, one more video captured on a passerby's cell phone, overturning the police justifiable homicide version of events and outrage, deep, historic, and oh lord complex began sweeping across and beyond the country. This is a time of consciousness shift. Humanity is altering its understanding of and relationship with power. The goal of this book is to help this shift along, to give some language to it. But first, the silence. Yeah, that's the book I've been dancing with for a decade. Perhaps sharing a few paragraphs of it in public will help bring it back to life. I think what happened is that I shrugged and gave it back to infinity a few years ago after an absurd bicycle accident that apparently shattered my belief in being positive and productive. What's the point? I was on a borrowed bike riding with family through a nature preserve in Wisconsin. We were on asphalt path. The group stopped for a moment and, well, the bike I was riding was slightly higher than the one I normally rode and, for some reason, still a mystery for me. Rather than dismounting, I simply stayed on the seat holding the handlebars. The bike fell sideways. My face hit the asphalt. Big ouch. I won't go into further details except to note that the big psychological ouch never quite went away and suddenly, so it seemed, eternity wasn't on my side any longer. My mind was still intact. I wasn't sick, didn't get COVID, but the aging process seemed to be in control of things now in a deeply emotional way rather than my sense of productive purpose. This was something I hadn't experienced before. I began making a completely unconscious decision to surrender to give up attitude, or at least partially surrender. I still write my weekly column, but the book felt lost in infinity. 
In sharing a fragment of it publicly, I think I'm saying this. I can't do it alone. I don't even know what I mean by that, except I know it to be true. I have to be humbly vulnerable as well as positive and productive. This is how that first chapter tentatively ends. What if we organized ourselves socially and politically in reverence not to some linear certainty, the law, but to this unknown, which demands of us not obedience and submission, but rather an ongoing openness to that which we don't know, the infinite universe? What if we organized ourselves around our best efforts to absorb, connect, and understand? From the obituary section, Beverly A. Gardner, July 19, 1947 to February 21, 2024. Wayne J. C. S. E. N. N. Sen, May 24, 1938 to February 21, 2024. You have been listening to a reading of articles and features from current issues of the Lockport Union Sun and Journal. Your reader has been Patricia. Thank you for listening.
next hour, I will be reading from the Saturday, Sunday, February 